there will be a woman president over my dead body. Let me say that again, but I think I got most of your attention. There will be a woman president over my dead body. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want to get political this morning because honestly, I'm tired of politics at this point. But those words, there will be a woman president over my dead body, were supposedly uttered by Phyllis Schlafly, who died this past week. Phyllis Schlafly was a conservative political activist who uh, staunchly opposed uh, modern feminism. And I don't know if she said those words or not, but they have been attributed to her. I don't know if she actually said them. And I don't know if we're going to have a woman president or not. I'm not opposed to a woman president. I think a woman would be fine if she's got the qualifications. But I am opposed to certain female candidates, just as I am opposed to certain male candidates. Will we have a woman president? We'll know in a few months. But if Phyllis Schlafly actually said those words, there will be a woman president over my dead body, then what she was saying is that she was so opposed to the idea of a woman president that she would do anything in her power to stop it. It would happen over her dead body. Jesus says something similar to us. Of course, it doesn't involve the presidency, Jesus already knows who our new president is going to be. He's already decided, and whoever it is, they are just the president of this country. Jesus is the king of the whole universe. See, our presidents work for Jesus, not the other way around. But Jesus says something similar to us. Jesus says, over my dead body. When you begin to entertain the idea that you can somehow, quote unquote, lose your salvation, Jesus says, no way, not on my watch, over my dead body will that happen. When you begin to think that you might somehow be able to sin your way out of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, over my dead body. When you begin to think that somehow you could mess up this whole idea of salvation, Jesus says, no way over my dead body am I going to let that happen. In fact, it is because of Jesus' dead body that you will receive the promised eternal inheritance that he has secured for you. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So open your Bibles, if you haven't, to Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord who has secured eternity for you, Christian. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
So the pastor of Hebrews is continuing his thought that Jesus is better. He's reminding the Hebrews that Jesus is better, and he's the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant. And he gives the reason why in verse 15. Because Jesus' death on the cross redeems people from their sins. His death, his shed blood, redeems people from the sins committed under the old covenant. And what sins were committed under the old covenant? Basically, it was the breaking of the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, demands perfection of every single person born into this world, and yet every single person born into this world has broken all of those commandments. In fact, the moral law of God was in place before the Mosaic law was given at Sinai. As we saw several weeks ago, even before the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the moral law of God, even before the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, they were already written on the heart of every single human being. And so the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the moral law of God, are binding on every single human being. The Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's holy character. And that's why the law of God, summed up in the Ten Commandments, is absolutely inflexible because God is holy. It's a reflection of his holy character. And because God is holy, his law, his standard of perfection, does not budge at all. The law, which is God's standard of perfection, doesn't budge. It doesn't move. It says to every single person in the world, be perfect. It says to every single human being, if you want to get close to God, if you want access to God, if you want access to his white, hot, holy presence, then you have to be perfect. God's law is absolutely inflexible in its demands. And Jesus doesn't change that in the new covenant. God's holy law still remains binding on all human beings. It's absolutely inflexible in its demands. It demands perfection of us. Now, the law makes these commands and these demands, but as we've seen over our series in Hebrews, the law cannot empower anyone to obey it. It can only make demands. That's the role of the law. God's law makes demands and commands us to be perfect and it exposes us as sinners so that we would despair and recognize our need of a savior. But as we saw several weeks ago in chapter eight, what is new about the new covenant is that God writes, it is finished on our hearts. In the new covenant, all of the commandments And the curses of the law have been taken care of by Jesus for us. Jesus fulfilled the law through his obedient life. He actively obeyed the law for us. And Jesus bore the curse of the law for us through his obedient death. And so we are not only saved by Jesus' death, but we don't talk about it enough. We are saved through Jesus' life as well. And so the good news of the gospel is that where the law says, do, do this and live, God says, done. Where Moses wrote the law on stone tablets, God writes the law on our hearts. 
where it was once written on our hearts in the moral law of God, be perfect, God comes along when you trust in Christ and says, done. Where it is written on our heart, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, God comes along for those who have trusted in Christ and says, done. Jesus has done this for you. All the demands of the law that are written on our hearts for those who are in union with Christ, God writes, done. Jesus did this perfectly for you. He met the standard of perfection for us. And then we meet that standard of perfection when we place our faith and our trust in Christ. And so the sins done under the old covenant, the breaking of God's law, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, the not being perfect, we are redeemed from those through faith in Jesus because of what he has done. And because we are redeemed and because we are forgiven of our sins, then the inheritance is ours. Because we are made perfect through Jesus, the inheritance is ours. Because we have met the standard of perfection by being in union with Christ, then the eternal inheritance is ours. Now, let's take a moment and recall what it was like under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. Remember, it was do this and live. Do this and be blessed. Obey God's law and enjoy God's blessings and enjoy life in the land. So in order for the nation of Israel to live in the land and to be blessed by Yahweh, they had to obey. Of course, they sinned. Remember, they're sinners, so they're going to sin. And that's why God instituted the sacrificial system, so that they could be declared clean and worship the Lord. But in order for the nation of Israel to inherit the land, to enjoy Yahweh's blessings, they had to be obedient. But we all know Israel's sad history, don't we? Sometimes they obeyed, not perfectly, of course. We know that they're sinners. Sometimes they obeyed, and they enjoyed the land, and they enjoyed the blessings of the Lord in the land. But as you read through First and Second Kings, you find the nation of Israel actually splintering into Judah and Israel, uh, two different nations, but they turned away from the Lord, and they were sent into exile in Babylon, and they lost the inheritance for 70 years. And please understand that there were God-fearing people who went into exile, who went into captivity in Babylon. There were people who loved Yahweh. He was their treasure. And they wanted to glorify him with their lives. And yet they were sent away into exile because the majority of the nation had turned away from the Lord. So under the old covenant, you could miss out on God's blessings because of other people. You could lose the inheritance of the land because of other people's sin and rebellion. But in the new covenant, Jesus secured our eternal inheritance through his obedient life and death. In the new covenant, it's Jesus' obedience to the law that gets us into the eternal inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. In the new covenant, other people's disobedience can't keep you out. Amen? Other people's sin and rebellion does not cut you off from your eternal inheritance. If that was the case, we would all cut each other off, wouldn't we? 
in the new covenant, other people's sin and rebellion does not affect your eternal inheritance. In fact, if you're a Christian in union with Christ, even your own disobedience cannot keep you out of the eternal kingdom. Your sin, your rebellion, your doubts, your fears, your guilt, your shame cannot keep you, Christian, out of the eternal kingdom. And so when you begin to think that somehow you can lose your salvation, lose your inheritance, Jesus says, over my dead body. Because you are in union with Christ, Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. You will not miss out on the promised eternal inheritance. Over my dead body is what Jesus says when you start to believe the lies of Satan. When you start to entertain the idea that somehow your behavior and your actions are going to keep you out of heaven, Jesus says, over my dead body, it's because of Jesus' death on the cross. It's because of Jesus' dead body and because of his dead body that was resurrected that we are kept secure and safe. That was our call to worship this morning out of 1 Peter and with our prayer of confession and celebration that it is kept in heaven for you, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our eternal inheritance is secured because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Christian, you can have that assurance this morning. As the Westminster Confession of Faith states, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, they may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. You can have that assurance that means, Christian, that even your own disobedience cannot keep you out of the eternal kingdom. Let that sink in. God will preserve you to the end. And so the doctrines of grace are true. The perseverance of the saints, eternal security justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are true. Now, the Westminster of Confession of Faith does go on to say that you can really mess your life up with sin in this life if you choose disobedience. It's true. What John Owen said is very true. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I mean, there's no other options. Either you are killing sin by the power of the Spirit of God and with the Word of God because your mind is stayed on Jesus and centered on the gospel, or sin is killing you. There's no other option. But if you are in union with Christ, your salvation cannot be undone. 
even by your own sin, even by your own disobedience. But you sure can mess your life up with sin. I sure can mess my life up with sin. Please understand that. Your salvation is secure and eternal and it is kept by Jesus for you. But you and I sure can destroy our lives, this life, by not killing sin. And that's why we still need warnings in the new covenant. Our eternal inheritance is not at stake. But we sure can mess our lives up by refusing to mortify, refusing to put sin to death. And so we still need to be warned about indwelling sin. In fact, I just read this week about three different people in ministry who had moral failings. And unfortunately, I was privy to some of the information. It is some of the most grotesque stuff I've heard happening, being done pastors and people in ministry. No one, no one is exempt from the dangers of indwelling sin. So we need these warnings to say, hey, this is real. Sin will mess your life up. There are two men right now I know of that are not in pastoral ministry because they didn't put sin to death. God forbid that that would happen to me or the pastors here, the elders here, the deacons, anyone in this church. We don't want that. So we still need to be warned about the danger of the enemy within indwelling sin. And if you're here today and you're playing with sin, I'm just feeling the Lord say, run. Look to Jesus. He's better. Fight. Look to God's word. Rehearse the promises and see how wonderful Jesus is. Whoever you are here in this room right now, run and fight so that you don't mess up your life and mess up your family because of sin. I just felt I needed to say that. So in the new covenant, we are called by God as verse 15 says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And so we are called. We hear the gospel call. And the Holy Spirit regenerates us in that moment. And he makes us alive spiritually so that we can repent of our sins. And so that we can trust in Christ. And then we are immediately justified. We are declared righteous by God. And we are then adopted into God's family and the inheritance is ours. That happens at the moment of salvation. All of that. The inheritance is yours the moment you are made alive and regenerated and repent and believe. You cannot lose it, Christian. We receive the promised eternal inheritance even though we have to wait for it. And that's one of the themes of the book of Hebrews. We are waiting to see our inheritance. We are waiting, as the preacher of Hebrews says, we'll look at it later, we are waiting for the city that is to come. We are waiting for eternity. We are waiting to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. We are waiting to get new resurrected bodies that will never get sick again, that will never sin again, no more indwelling sin. We are waiting for that day. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for that day. I'm tired of sinning. I'm good at it. Oh, I am good at it, but I hate it. I'm tired of sinning. I'm waiting for that day 
when I won't sin anymore. There's a better version of me coming. Hang on. If I've offended you, hang on. You'll like me in eternity. Just wait. And I'll like you. We're waiting to see Jesus face to face. That's the inheritance. Seeing Jesus, the one we love. Being with Jesus. Never sinning again. Truly glorifying and enjoying the triune God forever. That's our inheritance. And since a death has occurred, the death of God's Son, as verse 15 says, we are redeemed from our sins and the promised eternal inheritance is ours now even though we're waiting for it. It's ours now, all because Jesus died in our place. Now look at verses 16 and 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. In verses 16 and 17, most of the English versions of the Bible suddenly switch from using the word covenant, as it's translated in verse 15, to using the word will. They translate it as will in these verses, even though it's the exact same Greek word that occurs all the way throughout chapter 8 and chapter 9, the Greek word diatheke. I think the New American Standard Version gets it right because it translates the word diatheke as covenant all the way through chapter 8 and chapter 9. But for some reason, the ESV switches. But here's how the NASB translates verse 16 and 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. I think this is the better translation. Not knocking the ESV translation, it's my preferred translation. I'm grateful for any translation of the Bible. But I think this is the better translation, especially because the preacher has been talking about the contrast between the Old and the New Covenant throughout chapter 8 and 9 so far. I don't think we should bring our understanding of a last will and testament into the picture here. The preacher has been using this word diatheke, which is translated as covenant, all the way through chapter 8 and chapter 9. And so the language of covenant and the idea that a death has to occur in a covenant and the imagery of blood that has to be spilled, that's the context here. In fact, verse 17 reads literally this way, for a covenant takes effect or is made firm over dead things. Covenants get established over dead things, over dead bodies. Now, we may not be comfortable with that wording or with that imagery, but that's what is being said here. And certainly, the Hebrews were familiar with how bloody the old covenant was. There were victims who shed their blood in order to cover sin. Here's how a few other versions translate verse 17. I like these. For a covenant is secured upon the basis of dead bodies. Another translation. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast. Dead things. Dead bodies. Dead victims. That's actually a more accurate rendering of what the preacher is saying here. 
covenants in the ancient Near East as well as in Israel were put into effect, were inaugurated, were established and made firm over dead things, over dead bodies, over dead victims. Animals would be slain when a covenant was entered into by two parties, just like what we see in Genesis 15 with the Abrahamic covenant. And so the language of covenant and the death that has to occur when establishing a covenant and the blood that has to be spilled, that's the context here. For a covenant to take effect, to be established, there has to be dead victims. There have to be dead bodies, dead things. There has to be a shedding of blood. And that's exactly what the preacher says in verse 18, where the ESV goes back and adds the word diatheke as covenant again. In verse 18, the ESV now goes back and adds this word covenant. Let's go back to verse 16, though. And I've switched out the word will for covenant. So let's go back to verse 16 and get the context. For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the preacher wants the Hebrews to understand that Jesus had to die and shed his blood for the new covenant to be established. And the Hebrews knew that this is how the old covenant worked. The Mosaic Covenant was established this way. There were dead victims and there was the shedding of a lot of blood at Mount Sinai when the nation of Israel entered into covenant with Yahweh. At Sinai, Moses read the law to the nation and then he sprinkled everyone with blood. He took a hyssop plant, dipped it into the blood of the animals who were killed, and then he went around sprinkling everyone with blood. Imagine sitting there, he's read the law, and then you get splashed on the face with blood, and he went around and did everyone that way. Even He even sprinkled the book, which was the collection of laws that were given to him. And Moses sprinkled the tabernacle and all the utensils that were used in worship. So everything got sprinkled, covered in blood under the old covenant. All of the worshipers and all of the utensils and various things that were used in worship, everything was covered. In blood. And as Moses sprinkled everyone with blood, he said, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In other words, to establish this covenant and to keep this covenant going, blood had to be spilled and blood had to be continually shed. Without this continual shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. And so the preacher is reminding the Hebrews that in order for sinners to come near to God, blood had to be shed. And sinners had to be declared clean. There had to be dead things. There had to be dead bodies. There had to be dead victims. There had to be bloodshed. And if this was true under the old covenant with all the types and shadows, how much more in the new covenant? Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary 
for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What does it mean that Jesus purified heavenly things with his blood? Why would heaven itself need to be purified? Why would heaven itself need to be purified with Jesus' blood? Well, the answer lies in verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, not into the tabernacle, not into the temple, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. If we sinners are going to be there, if we sinners are going to have access to God's white-hot presence, and according to Hebrews chapter 4, we have access to his throne of grace. If we are going to be there, if we are going to see Jesus face to face, then that means there will need to be cleansing. In other words, heaven is not polluted until we show up. Heaven is not polluted until we sinners show up. And here's how John Piper explains it, and I haven't found a better explanation, so I'm going with him. He says, here is a great comfort and encouragement to us. It is not complimentary, but it is wonderfully hope-giving. If you want to be made much of, rather than having the mercy of God made much of you, you will not want to listen to this. But if you love the mercy of God and admit the misery of your own condition, you will love this. Verse 24 says that Christ enters the holy place of heaven with his better sacrifice to appear in the presence of God for us. This means that he will cleanse us there. We are what needs cleansing. And to the degree that we might defile heaven, Christ in that sense cleanses heaven. He continues, now listen to this. He is speaking to those of you, all of us in our clear moments, who feel so dirty and so deeply bad that you would only pollute heaven if you got there. Oh, how many people are kept away from Christ because of this. I pray that you will see what an invitation this is. This is God's way of saying, Come, you dirty ones. Come, you defiled, you deeply evil ones. Come, you who have soiled yourselves and who have been stained by others. Come to my heaven, for my son is there. And he has not died in vain. He stands guard over my holy place, not to keep you out but to make you clean so that you can be with me in perfect holiness forever. Come. Jesus appears in the presence of God for us. For us. For us. For people who have not been perfect. For people who have not measured up, for people who have broken his law, for people who cannot meet his standard of holiness on our own. Oh, to be sure, the law will have its say. The law stands at the front door of heaven, if you will. And the law says, you will not enter because you're a sinner. You're polluted. You're dirty. You're deeply evil. 
You have soiled yourself. You are stained. The law says, over my dead body is someone like you getting into his presence. And then Jesus silences the voice of the law when he says on behalf of those who are in union with him, it is finished. This is why the word gospel means good news. Jesus appears in God's white, hot, holy presence on our behalf for us. And he says, come, approach the throne. You are clean. You are blameless. Come and worship. Feast. Drink. Be satisfied. Enjoy God. And how is it that sinners, dirty, polluted sinners, can get there? How is that possible? Because of Jesus. You have to travel over Jesus' dead body to get there. If you want to be with God in heaven forever on the new earth, you have to travel over Jesus' body to get there. And so Jesus says, over my dead body, that's how you come. Over my dead body, the new covenant has been established. Over my dead body on the cross is how you, a sinner, can enter into God's white, hot, holy presence. So come. Come. Approach the throne. You're clean. You're blameless. Come and worship. Feast. Drink. Be satisfied. Enjoy God. And when you turn your eyes off of Jesus, and when you get your eyes on yourself, and you look away from him, You'll start believing lies, the lies of your own heart, the lies of the devil, the lies of the world. And like the Hebrews, you'll start to think that you can earn your salvation. You'll start to think that it's all riding on you. You'll start to think, I can be good enough. I can go back to the law. I can be good enough to measure up to get there. So you'll have doubts and you'll have fears and you'll start to think, I'm not clean. I can't go to him. Dirty. He won't have me. But Jesus will have you. Oh, Jesus will have you. He appears in the presence of God on your behalf. He appears in the white, hot, glorious presence of God on your behalf. Christian, the inheritance is yours. God has promised it. You will see him face to face one day and you'll enjoy it and you'll enjoy him. You won't run from him. You'll run to him when you see him and you'll worship and enjoy him forever. You will delight in Jesus, your treasure, forevermore. If you are in union with Christ and you begin to think that somehow you're going to mess all this up and you can lose your inheritance, Jesus says to you over my dead body. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You have to travel over Jesus' dead body to get there. Will you repent today of your sin and your rebellion? And will you trust in Christ today? If not, you don't get to be with God forever. You spend eternity in hell suffering under his wrath because of your sin and your rebellion. But he offers amnesty today. He offers amnesty to sinners. It says, fess up. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you've broken my law. 
turn from your sins and trust in my son, and then you are welcome. Come home. Let's close with something very similar that Jesus said in John 14. I want you to notice how closely he connects our troubled hearts with the hope of our eternal inheritance. Notice how Jesus goes straight from the command not to let our hearts be troubled immediately to the assurance of our eternal inheritance. In John 14, verses 1 to 4, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Do you remember the context of John 14? Jesus had just told them, one of you is going to betray me. And John says, none of them knew who he was talking about. So they didn't even know that it was Judas. Judas knew, but the other disciples were clueless. So he says, one of you is going to betray you. And then right after that, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then what does he say immediately after telling Peter that? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. They're all panicking. Am I going to be the one that betrayed him? If Peter's going to, Peter's going to deny him three times, who, who's the one that's going to betray him? Let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, he's saying, you can't sin your way out of the kingdom. Even if you deny me three times, let not your hearts be troubled. And then who's the one who wrote First Peter? We read twice already that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. Who wrote that? Peter, the guy that denied him three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so merciful to sinners like us. Yes, we are in union with your son and we rejoice that all of his benefits are ours because of that union. And yet our communion fluctuates, God. There's ebb and flow and sometimes we really want sin and we mess our lives up because of sin. So God, make us aware of our indwelling sin, that we would fight it. Make us see the beauty of your Son in the gospel, that we would desire Him more, and that we would hate sin. God, don't let us lose our wonder as a church. Don't let us lose our awe of you, that you welcome sinners into your presence. Don't let any of us ruin our lives because of sin, Father. May we see Jesus again this morning and celebrate and drink and be satisfied. In his name we pray, amen.